Hello, welcome to the third and final part of an expanded edition of Knowledge on the Go, the podcast brought to you by the Performance Improvement Collaborative and Knowledge Transfer Teams at Vizient. I'm your host, Marilyn Sherrill. In this episode, Dr. Tom Spiegel, Medical Director for the University of Chicago's Emergency Department, and Dr. Marty Lucinti, Senior Vice President and CMO, Solution Architecture at Vizient, discuss how scope of care and social determinants of care will shape the future of emergency medicine. Patients don't always know where to go when they have medical issues. That makes the role of the emergency department a catch-all for everybody. Tom, how does emergency medicine switch from convenient care to a scope of care? One of the main areas was what should the emergency department be shooting for? You know, what, what, is, what is the goal that we're trying to achieve? Within emergency medicine, there's, there's a continuum of care that's provided. Let's say the left side that you have the, the life and limb saving emergency care. And that's what I think most emergency medicine providers went into emergency medicine to provide was the adrenaline pumping, exciting, uh, saving a life. That's one, certainly one aspect of our care. And that's really at one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, we get more of the convenience care. So the UTIs, the knee pains, the back pain, the kind of things that don't necessarily require advanced level life-saving training nor facilities, but patients don't know where to go sometimes and they, they have an issue that they want to address by a medical provider. So they come to the emergency department. With that spectrum in mind, from life and limb saving all the way to convenience care, then in the middle, we discussed that there's really this acute diagnostic center, but that's really where you could get the advanced testing, advanced imaging, talk to the providers and get some solid diagnoses and maybe even additional advanced testing beyond that. Medicine has really evolved to a point of complexity beyond the capabilities of many independent practitioners' offices. So if you go to a primary care clinic, they may not be able to handle acute belly pain. You know, you may need a CT scan and you can't get that necessarily from a primary clinic. You may need those the labs in a rapid turnaround time in, in order to find out what's going on with the patient. And that's really one of the services and one of the benefits of having an emergency department being viewed as an acute diagnostic center is that you've got the infrastructure and systems to support that rapid diagnosis, that rapid testing. Marilyn, I'd probably add along this lines is, you know, I, I like to divvy up uh, emergency room patient populations into four broad categories. The first one is what Tom described as we, you know, we all think of when we think of an emergency room, a place that population of folks are acutely decompensating and are at risk of losing their life. You know, most places do an amazing job with that first population all across the country, everywhere you go. It's the subsequent groups that start to get compromised off of a highest acuity to lowest acuity model. As you start to get into that acute diagnostic center and you start to have a more sophisticated operational perspective on it, rather than looking at that low acuity patient or convenient care encounter as somebody who can wait, look at that as a care encounter that could actually be gone really quickly. And that's what their expectation is. The patient who comes in for something small actually thinks, just take care of me. They expect that emergency rooms should have the same operational sophistication as the five items or less counter at Walmart, Kmart, or so forth. To make that group happy really takes just a small, reliable, consistent resource allocation, and you can have a very satisfying, convenient care operation. 
The in-between groups are that uh, requires a lot of diagnostics. And because of the complexity of their care, there always is some risk that they're going to jump over into that first group of immediate de decomposition just because of the complexity of their care. That's the group often that we think we do a poor job of in emergency medicine. It's the geriatric patients. And most emergency providers will tell you that's a group we do a poor job by. If you actually look at satisfaction scores, that group always rates us well. They're appreciative. The next group, the young, relatively healthy folks who have a problem that require a complicated workup, there for the acute diagnostic encounter, but not necessarily with a lot of comorbidities or not necessarily likely to acutely decompensate. That's a group, younger, healthier people who need a complicated workup. They live in a service economy that knows what service looks like. And so that's often the group that when you look at patient satisfaction scores, that's the group that's always so critical of the standard operating model of emergency rooms. We'd probably be remiss if we didn't talk about doing medical screening exams. Emergency rooms are technically only required to do a medical screening exam. They are technically required to make sure and to assess whether there is any risk of life, limb, or eyesight. And if they assure that that's not the case, they can then go on to say, I'm going to provide care if you can pay for care. If I can reliably and consistently rule out risk of life, limb, or eyesight, I've done 90% of the work and I just as soon finish, okay? I often find that that eliminates is bad debt, but there are a number of emergency rooms that kind of lean on that medical screening exam. It doesn't necessarily lead to operational efficiencies. Yeah, so some models have providers up front, up in the triage area. There's many different names for that type of model, but physician in triage or the PIT model is, is one of the common ones. That allows you to do a medical screening exam pretty much at the door. So that alleviates some of that burden, but then it, you're putting additional resources up front, and that's not an inexpensive proposition. I know also some systems then send those patients to other clinics. So once you meet the EMTALA requirement of a medical screening exam, you could either keep them in the emergency department or send that patient to a clinic if they don't need anything overly acute. Fulfilling the EMTALA requirement of a medical screening exam is, is going to continue to exist as far as any discussions I've heard. And that's some, one of the things that emergency medicine departments have to contend with. If you want to try to alleviate visits to the emergency room, what you've actually got to create in your outpatient care settings is you've got to consolidate the diagnostics and therapeutics that you see in the emergency room. Folks that are trying to keep people out of the emergency room need to make sure that their outpatient clinics have a consolidation of laboratory resources right next to their care providers, diagnostic resources right next to their care providers in order so that you can give that care provider the things that they need to get to the answer. Many times the people come to the emergency room not because the clinician in the, in the outpatient setting didn't know what he wants. He just couldn't accomplish it in that setting. I think you will also see the flip side happen in the future. You're going to start to see where health systems actually say, hey, if my doctor in the outpatient setting already knows what they want, why do they go to the emergency room and have to see another emergency room doctor? Could I just make the diagnostic resources available and give scope of privilege to my outpatient docs and maybe have a mid-level there that facilitates some of the workup? I believe in the future, if you really start to look at the natural extension of that acute diagnostic center, you may make those diagnostics available to your outpatient docs and, and eliminate some of that double touch of a provider.
Yeah, and Marty, I would add on to that, that from a patient perspective, giving them additional options and making it easier for the patient to access care is going to be critical in the future as well. So whether these are smartphone apps or easy ways to schedule, whether it is telehealth, there needs to be a way in the future to make it easy and very smooth process for the patient. Otherwise, they're going to continue to follow the path of least resistance, which is, you know, show up at the emergency department. That is the first choice for a lot of patients. It will take a concerted effort to change those habits. Won't providers also have to be trained differently for that kind of a shift? The the types of providers needed for emergency medicine is really going to be tied to a a location specific to the population that they serve. So going back to the continuum that we talked about, do you need to have the American Board of Emergency Medicine board certified providers to to do all levels of care? The, The answer is probably not. For the life and limb saving end of the spectrum, yes, I think that would be greatly preferred. When you start talking about convenience care, if you have a lot of convenient care kind of visits at your emergency department, mid-levels can do those, you know, they do a fantastic job of taking care of those patients. Not only can they care for them, but they could also then identify patients that may be slipping through the cracks and they're actually, you know, more ill than they appear. And then they could expedite those patients back to other providers or other care teams. And then when we're talking right in the middle of that spectrum, acute diagnostic center, then that's where that balance uh, is really going to become a, more of a, a mix of both types of providers. I think there's also a role at the academic urban centers, not even ac- the, the urban centers, but the academic centers that have for residents. So where do residents fit into this entire medical practice? And I think that they would benefit in terms of their own education from experiences in all levels of care. Learning different processes and having a variety of experiences for providers seems like a good idea. Marty, what about specialists? Do you see those physicians embedded in ED staffing? That actually, Marilyn, is is the old model of emergency medicine. If you went to an emergency room 30 years ago, you'd come in, there'd be a triage nurse, you know, and, and there was an immediate routing and what always was a problem when you did that is, you know, what if the belly pain is an ovarian issue or is it appendicitis? You know, how do you do that where the differential goes, cuts across, you know, some of those stratifications of specialists? The specialty of emergency medicine was intended to overcome that. What you will see, though, is folks are absolutely unequivocally wanting access to ultra specialists to get multidisciplinary care planning. The workup being done by the emergency room doc, and and most people are actually starting to consider the specialty of emergency medicine as, as, you know, a specialty of diagnosticians. Their job is that diagnostic phase. More and more, you know, general surgeons don't diagnose appendicitis. They come in and take out the appendix of a patient that's been diagnosed by the diagnostician. And so the intervention and the specialty care needs to be readily available But the intent of the design of the specialty was to get away from the hot potatoing between specialists and some of those patient encounters that where the differential span specialties. We'll see them, but we'll see them in the second phase, less in the first phase. It seems to be the normal trend. The other thing that I would say is, you know, emergency medicine is kind of going through that challenge that other specialties are receiving. Primary care is an extreme, right? When you look at the mid-level utilization, there's the question, are you going to use mid-levels? Are you using mid-levels as physician extenders? Are you using mid-levels as physician substitutes? 
you know, you're seeing a real mix of people's strategies in both of that. In the primary care, you've seen there's just been a real migration towards physician substitute just because of distribution and rural care settings. There's just not enough doctors to be monitoring and, and leading the care in all these encounters. And so there's a lot of stratification of patients towards physician substitutes. In emergency rooms, you're seeing different philosophies. It is certainly the case that there are mid-levels doing great emergency care, you know, in a physician substitute model. And I've seen emergency rooms where 60% of the patients never actually see an MD. They're getting their care from a mid-level. But I've also seen places that, you know, still are holding to the concept that every patient should see a doctor and they truly use their, uh, their mid-levels as physician extenders. And I think there's still going to be a natural tension and ebb and flow in, the, in that dynamic between the two models. Different levels of providers in the ED are ultimately going to be in better position to route patients to other service lines. What other factors make the ED the point of access in an organization? Tom? So we discussed before about the ED can be seen as the front door to the hospital and to the healthcare system, especially as the ED becomes that acute diagnostic center, the opportunity to be able to take a patient and be able to refer them to advanced imaging, advanced testing, that whole option is far more readily available. So if the ED is seen as a front door to access or as a front door to growth for the other service lines, being able to take that patient and navigate them to the cardiologist, to the vascular surgeon, to other services, that's really a system and a model that could be extremely attractive to a healthcare system. Not only that, but it's also easier for the patient and provides better care. So I think that we're talking about some significant wins on all fronts. Yeah, and I, and I always say the thing that, that's most valuable about the emergency room, because it deals with such a diverse you know, and wide array of patient problems and patient types, is that the emergency room is an exquisitely good sorter and router of patients. Leveraging that is a really important concept. I've seen many health systems start to use some of their, their triage nurses from the emergency room as a phone triage and phone routers for patients that call in for direction and guidance on care. It's an important realization that nobody does sorting and routing for a single point of entry like the emergency room. And leveraging that, I think, is an exquisitely valuable strategy for most health systems. When we talk about that physician substitute model, you always have to be careful. As exquisitely good as the sorting in emergency medicine is, it's still a probabilistic endeavor, meaning that it's good, but it's good with a certain failure rate. That failure rate's quite low, but a low failure rate on a very large number is still a lot of failures. One of the things that's really important as you look at partitioning care is just re always remember that if you partition care such that a certain set of providers only see the low end of acuity, what you'll get is what's called an acuity bias. They will see the early phase of high acuity and they'll lump it in with just a normal less acute encounter. And so I always encourage folks to make sure that the providers have exposure across the full spectrum of emergency care so that they don't get locked into an acuity bias. If they only see one type of patient, then guess what? That patient by default is that type of patient, and they won't pick up those unusual presentations that get subtly mistriaged. When you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? That alludes back to the benefits of diversity in training. Now let's look beyond the acute care setting. 
Tom, what is the role of the community for helping emergency medicine of the future? Most of our uh, next opportunities, I believe, are outside of the walls, not only within the, the healthcare system, but also within the community. Well, I think that's one of our biggest opportunities in the future is to say, what can we do different in terms of education, in terms of community involvement, and community partnerships, to be able to open up other access points for care to our patient population? Not only will that be better for them, but it would also lead to benefits for the emergency department because it's going to lead to decreased demand. All that being said, going back to your question, what is the role of emergency medicine in the community? I think our role is to recognize that we are one with the community and that our future success is going to depend upon the success of our partnerships within the community to increase health as well as decrease overall demand for our services. We had talked earlier about you know, how reimbursement has affected ER volume. Once you have capitation, some risk-based stuff, you start to see declines. And what we saw with the, the ACA is we got a significant expansion of people who were insured, especially places like California. You know, with the expansion of coverage, you know, interestingly, we, we thought that that may lead to decreased uh, ER encounters. But unless you have an immediate surge of primary care docs who are willing to take Medicaid, what you actually saw and you saw in California is that that first wave of getting additional coverage actually led to a pretty significant expansion of ER encounters. And I think Tom was kind of going, and I think this is a really important thing, is so many times what we're dealing with in the emergency room isn't purely a medical issue. There are a lot of psychosocial components that drive patients towards us. And it's an ongoing challenge to decide, you know, what is the responsibility of the health system and to what extent can they determine and solve the social woes of the, of the community that they exist. You know, most folks in emergency medicine have come to the realization that they can't necessarily solve all of the social woes that exist in their communities, but they can really make a good faith effort and really do all that they can to partner with social services to help make sure the entirety of the patient is treated and to make sure that you're addressing some of those social issues. What we're finding in, you know, broadly in healthcare, if you take the, the extra time and you, you partner with, you know, with social services, you can actually drive down the utilization uh, and the cost of provision of care for some of these folks where some of those social factors are actually what's driving most of their medical access. Social determinants of health are a big area of concentration in all of healthcare. Marty, how do you take some strain off of emergency medicine by tapping into the resources of the community? The easy and the simplest one is I'd, I've never seen an emergency room that doesn't have a relationship with a homeless shelter or simple things on, on those fronts. That's a, a simple one that we see pretty consistently across the country. But there's a, I, you know, what we've seen is uh, folks that have actually gone to and uh, done the extra work of having folks that can do benefits analysis and see if they can get people plugged into health insurance. That's happening in the emergency rooms across the country, especially referrals for drug and alcohol uh, services is very big. Food access and, and delivery of meds and you know facilitation of transportation. You're seeing emergency rooms kind of make moves on all of those. It is amazing the constellation of things that emergency rooms that partner with their community to, to help solve in terms of social woes. 
any list that we generated would probably be a, a short list of, of all of the creative things. And this was actually the area when you when you looked at the group of uh, facilities and the health systems that came together in this group, we were looking at the folks that had extreme challenges, that capacity expansion was never going to be the solution to their demand problem. This is the front that uh, we saw really creative ideas, really, truly creative ideas you know, using your EMS for home health visits so you're getting full utilization of those ambulances. I would say the most innovative stuff and the stuff that quite honestly needs to be disseminated to the broader emergency medicine community because extreme necessity has led to some really creative uh, endeavors on this front. And I think the, the, in the entire area of social uh, emergency medicine is really uh, taking root and growing across the country. So I think that this as a, as a concept is being recognized and, and is being worked on. One of the challenges that we face is that if you were to go into any emergency department and, and walk up to a provider and ask them about housing insecurity, food insecurity for their patients, and which of their patients are they concerned about that, they may not have those answers. I think we're, we're not doing a great job of collecting that data in a usable fashion at this point. I think there, there are efforts underway across the country to address this. But I think right now as we stand and as we're looking forward, I think that's one of the areas that we need to tackle as a healthcare specialty and as a, a healthcare overall. The aspiration and the desire, you know, may be outpacing the, you know, where we are operationally. But, you know, I think this is another one of those cases where the next generation, I think, aspires to do better in this dimension. When I was looking at residencies, you know, the hot niche was international medicine and, you know, doing emergency medicine in an international setting. Social determination and being socially conscious is actually probably one of the biggest question areas from the residents, making sure that the education they got is contextual in, the, in this sense, is actually kind of the, the you know, one of the, the hot demands of, of the next generation of trainees in emergency medicine. Yeah, Marty, every year I interview uh, residents, quite a few residents for uh, our residency program, and I completely agree. Global health used to be the, the question that was asked interview after interview, and now it really has shifted towards social EM is, is the hot topic, and every now and then you get a little sprinkle of global health, but it really has transitioned to social EM. What does the data say when it comes to emergency medicine changing care outcomes? Vizient does a lot of transparent comparative analytics, and what you're starting to see is people truly believe is capturing this is really important to actually properly risk stratify, you know, care outcomes and so forth. These are the dominant drivers of health outcomes in many, many, many settings, especially in the emergency room. So I think the emergency department itself has some opportunity to deploy additional resources for these patients, whether it's social workers, whether it's case managers. In our healthcare system, we call them patient advocates. I know that there's, there's various terms at other hospitals, but it's really to get down to talk to a patient about what are their healthcare needs, uh, where are their healthcare resources, do they have a provider? If they're a Medicaid patient, they likely have a provider assigned to them. They may not know that, though. So being able to find out more about the patient and then plugging them back into more appropriate follow-up resources than simply returning back to the emergency department. Yeah, and Marilyn, you know, I'd add on this too. One of the things that's real important in this space is translation services in the emergency room. I think that's another area that's really crucial to get fully contextual care uh, is to make sure you've got a robust strategy for translation for patients. All of those things I think are real important. I think the other thing that emergency rooms more and more and more are doing is they're putting an onus on themselves 
to screen for some of these things. Even if the patient doesn't volunteer, we've taken on the the imperative that we're going to screen for some risk factors that could adversely affect our patients and make sure each and every time patients come to the emergency room, we do uh, our due diligence to make sure that there are no social contacts that puts them at risk, even if it's only partially or even unrelated to their, you know, their encounter in the emergency room. That's an important step. But what if an ED doesn't have the resources for that? What can be done to provide assistance to the ED? I think that the need in this entire area is so great in some areas that I would encourage hospital executives and hospital leadership to really understand what they're trying to solve for. I think solving for everything is, is a tall order. In fact, I would say it's unachievable, but uh, understanding exactly what are the key factors that affect your patient population is really the most important in terms of taking actionable steps. Talking to your social workers, talking to your frontline ED staff, they, they see these folks all the time. Uh, your overnight nurses know more about these patients than you would imagine. Collecting that data, understanding what you're dealing with, and then engaging with your social workers and, and other social support services to be able to make effective solutions for your top priorities would really be the next steps. You know, when you look at the case management space, discharge planning for patients, it was the case that, you know, in historically discharge planners, case managers, you know, would be monocularly focused on here's where I'm sending you for follow-up. But you're starting to see hospitals actually take on the responsibility of providing outpatient care navigators to the patients leaving to really try to mitigate some of the social determinants, some of those stressors that cause readmission. Things that cause readmission, things like access to the medicines that they that they need, that they were prescribed, or access to, to appropriate food and nutrition. So you're starting to see hospitals really put, you know, more emphasis on some of these things and really start to think of reliable and consistent transitioning of care from a care coordinator in the inpatient setting to a to a care navigator in the outpatient setting and making sure that those things transpire for the best interest of the patient. And I always like to, to give an example because it's the context where there's the greatest challenge. If you are discharged from an acute psychiatric facility, you are more likely to have another behavioral health crisis and end up in the ER than you are to have a follow-up outpatient behavioral health encounter. To kind of show you where some of these opportunities still lie, behavioral health and some of those things are a great example of we may not always be meeting our social obligations on some of those fronts in terms of making sure they land in an appropriate outpatient care setting and they don't come back in extremis. I know some emergency departments have also deployed uh, pharmacies within their ED, outpatient pharmacies within their ED, and then in, uh, combining medicines in hand with a guaranteed follow-up back at the ED the next day or two to make sure patients are doing well. And most importantly, on that repeat visit, to plug them back in to uh, outside care. So to meet with a caseworker or a social worker to find out who should they be going to get care for next time and actually scheduling, helping those folks schedule their next visit uh, is a whole nother uh, avenue that I know that some institutions are doing. What else is on the horizon for emergency medicine? You know, because of the role that the emergency room plays in the health system, which is it's a safety net for the hospital, what we were really coming to, to the conclusion is we were solving health system failures. And so 
I think what you're going to start to see is most health systems are sort of a mergers, acquisition, slamming together of facilities with services. I think you're going to start to see a lot more rationalization of broader health system design. How do you distribute services? Where are they located? Do you optimize and consolidate uh, certain ultra specialty things? It became very clear to us there needed to be the ER was sort of sort of unintentionally filling gaps in the health system. I think what we all saw is there needed to be a lot more strategic design of the health system services and integration of those services as whole. Yeah, Marty, I think I think the the saying we had during uh, one of these discussions was, well, it's easy. It's you know to fix the emergency department, you just have to fix healthcare. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly it. Many of the strains on the ER especially on the behavioral health side, is the belief that if we don't build it or if we don't have it, maybe they'll stop coming. That hasn't panned out for us in uh, in emergency care. I Tom, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. No, I, th- I think that's a great point because uh, the demand is, is increasing whether you build the capacity and the resources to either mitigate some of that demand or, again, increase your throughput and integrate your emergency department within the hospital, within your community. The patients are continuing to come. And as you mentioned before, in terms of our the future projections, that as our population ages, the demand for our services uh, is going to, at least on uh, for our geriatric population, increase, our psychiatric population increase. So there's there's going to be continued need for our services and to sit by idly uh, and not prepare for this, I think is uh, you'd be remiss to do so. Thank you again, Tom and Marty, for sharing your views on the future of emergency medicine with us for this series. One thing is for certain, to provide the most efficient care to patients going forward, it will take great effort from both inside and outside the walls of the emergency department. We thank you for listening to our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line at knowledge transfer at visientinc.com. From the PI Collaborative and Knowledge Transfer teams, I'm Marilyn Cheryl. Remember, knowledge is transformational. Share it. Share it.